You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 111 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, we are going to listen to a very good talk from Terence McKenna about DMT that I found online without any source mentioned. So I don't know where it is from. But I think if you listen to this talk, you will get a lot of interesting information regarding DMT. Regardless, if you are experienced with DMT or if you're just curious about it, I think this next hour will give you a lot of enjoyment. I have done some minor edits to make it more enjoyable to listen to as well. And the only thing I want to point out is that I really like his argument in the very beginning of this talk, which is that even if you disagree with everything that Terence says about psychedelics, it would only take 10 minutes in regards to DMT to perhaps convert the unconverted. 10 measly minutes. But let's not ramble on anymore. Here's Terence. Um... DMT is by far the most dramatic of all of these hallucinogens. And in some ways, if we only had DMT, we could do just fine, thank you. I mean, it's clumsy in some situations, but, but it definitely takes you from A to Z with all the stops in between. Uh, it's also interesting in that it is so, so how can I put it, uh, socially transportable in that it only lasts 10 minutes. Well, so our critics can surely invest 10 minutes. I mean, it's not addictive. So what argument can there be against it? If you're going to take up the cudgels of drug oppression and lead a lifelong crusade against the evils of hallucinogenesis, surely you will not sully yourself too dramatically if you just invest 10 miserable minutes to try and understand the phenomenon from the inside. And of course, if we get that 10 minutes, we have them. <laughs> because th- this, I don't believe that this side of the yawning grave, there is a more dramatic experience that you can go through. I mean, maybe surviving the crash of a 747 or something, but these are high-risk activities. Smoking DMT is not a high-risk activity. could do the whole thing in 15 minutes, start to finish. And yet what happens is it is more dramatic than a flying saucer invasion. Uh, it uh, takes you into a direct three-dimensional confrontation with uh, an alien intelligence of some sort. And it raises questions about um, uh, the after-death, 
state, whether or not consciousness can exist without a body, uh, the nature of the alien, the nature of our place in the cosmos. Uh, it's it's uh, very, very dramatic. And I think it is, uh, uh, you know, we said yesterday, the inner eye opens on the landscape of time. Well, when the inner eye is illuminated by the light of DMT, then essentially what you get is a fast forward of the rest of of universal history squeezed down into about a minute and a half because even though the DMT trip you know takes seven minutes and takes five minutes to get over the really important part is in the it has a duration on the order of a hundred seconds or something and the longest hundred seconds you will ever know uh, because that's how you get people to do it. It's how I was gotten to do it. I only asked one question when they brought me DMT. I said, how long does it last? And he said, three to five minutes. Bring it on, Sam. <laughs> and, you know, never having recovered then from that decision. <clears throat> the thing that you see in DMT, I mean, I'm what I've called the self-transforming elf machines, right, are, uh, well, well, when you smoke DMT and you get a good hit, I mean, the leather-lunged hash aficionados among us really have a leg up in this department because they can simply take it and hold it because it is very harsh and peculiar and somewhat synthetic tasting. It's a little like smoking a mothball. <laughs> Sounds like fun, right? <laughs> but what happens to me is I am propelled through a series of, of tunnels, fluxing tubes-like things that are very brightly colored, and there's a kind of a sense of tumbling that is an initial discontinuity once I get beyond this swirling mandalic form that seems very typical that people call the chrysanthemum. You sort of have to break through that. It's definitely a threshold drug. You have to get over a certain threshold. But if you do, hang on Hannah. And it just it comes on in about 15 to 30 seconds and you're propelled down this fluctuating colored tube and that and your body feels strange anesthetized something it's very hard to put your finger on it and then i burst into a space where there is immediately a, a roar of welcome and i'm in this domed indirectly lit, comfortable place with ceilings not much higher than this and the walls pushed a little bit further out and somehow there's an intuition that is unmistakable that this is underground, that we're far underground. Why? I don't know, but you know that you're underground 
And then the main thing that's happening, though, is the entities, these, the, the elf machines, these jewel self-dribbling basketballs made out of light, these they look like foraminifera cast in opal or something that are completely moving and transforming. And they come right up to you, right up to you. And then they, they jump into your chest and jump out again. And they, there is this crazy emotion running around. It's like... I don't know, did you ever see the film Hell's a Poppin'? It was a 30s deal. Um, or the or Marx Brothers cartoon, uh, Marx Brothers routine, or a Max Sennett comedy. It's sort of like a Bugs Bunny cartoon run backwards at high supersonic speed. There's all this jumping around and playing. They're playing. They're like kittens. Or, yes, sort of like kittens. And they're saying, we love you. We love you, buddy boy. And we're so glad to see you. And it's horrifying. <laughs> it's horrifying because, you know, less than a minute before, you were with your scruffy friends in some room somewhere, with the call due from your lawyer in 45 minutes and all this stuff. And then you did this drug. And, and it came on so fast that it's not like doing a drug. It's more like, did the apartment house blow up? Has there been an earthquake? Are we dead? What has happened? And these things are saying, forget that. Don't worry. Number one message, don't worry. Number two message, somewhat surprising, do not give way to amazement. That's what they say. They say, do not abandon yourself to wonder. Just pay attention. Because I'm like this. You know, and you breathe. And look around, and it doesn't go away. It's stable, you know. And you think, oh, God. You take your pulse, your pulse is all right, and, 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 and you're just like, Jesus criminy, I've done it this time. And meanwhile, these things are uh, doing what they do. And what they do is they make objects out of language. They possess a language that you can see. And they make things with it. They're singing. They're punning. Their punning is what they're doing. They're, they're able to make things which are both words and objects simultaneously. And they're producing these uh, unbelievable puns. And they're showing them to you. And one of them will come scampering up, although they have no legs and they're not, you know, but scamper is the vibe. They come scampering up and they say, look at this, look at this, and here's another one. No, no, me, me. They're elbowing each other out of the way. Look at this, look at this. And you, as you direct your attention into these things that they're offering you, you it, then you realize why they said, do not abandon yourself to wonder, do not give way to astonishment. Because what they're showing you is impossible. 
It's impossible. And as you look, you say, matter can't do that. Light can't do that. Because these things are morphing, transforming. These cross between Fabergé eggs and Radiolaria and, and opalescent foraminifera and these complex mathematical geometric things. Saying, look at this, look at this. And then when they release these things, the things themselves are generating language, squealing and chirping and punning and humming and generating other objects. And this stuff is just accumulating. And they are very intent and they say, do what we are doing. Do what we are doing. Pay attention and do it. And at first, and by at first, I mean the first five years of smoking DMT every once in a while, because it's not something you do very often. I couldn't, it was all going so fast. I was just like in shock. I was, in fact, too amazed to participate. And then high-dose mushroom trips and practicing the glossolalia and this and that, I got to the place where when I go in there and all this is happening, I feel in the bottom of my stomach, in the solar plexus, uh, like a, a lump or a light or a something, and it begins to move up. And when it reaches my mouth, my mouth just snaps open, and I can do what they want me to do. And I can then join in the play and can make these objects. This is the glossolalia part of it. Glossolalia is not what it appears to the observer. It's some kind of activity where you, you know, masturbate the visual cortex or something like that. And as long as you do it, and as long as the drug stays at high concentration in the synapse, uh, you're just ecstatic. And they're ecstatic. They're jumping up and down. Yes, yes, he's got it by God. That's it. Pouring in all this encouragement and love and affection. And you now, you're now, you know, a minute, two and a half minutes deep into this thing. And at that point, it just sort of like a shudder goes through it and it kind of pulls apart and falls down and moves back and melts and drifts away and evaporates and any number of other words used to describe dissipation. And then you open your eyes and your friends are there. Granted, they appear to be beryllium mantises of some sort, but nevertheless, easily recognized as friends and neighbors. And though you are more loaded at that moment than you have ever been in your life, you feel perfectly confident to proclaim, I'm down. <laughs> because you are down. 
because compared to where you were 20 seconds earlier, the fact that your friends look like polished mantids and all the rest of it is utterly mundane and trivial and gives you no problem at all. You, you just say, thank God I'm back in the real world. And then over the course of the next three minutes, it just goes away. A lot of people have the experience. It is put through many filters, and people always ask this. And I think two things are critical here. Dose, and I'm a lifelong hash smoker, and I can take an enormous hit of hash and hold it. There isn't a cilia left in my entire uh, lung system. That's important. And then the other thing is, I think it's this veil thing. How much can you stand? Because the people come back and they say things which are like along the spectrum to what I'm describing, but not quite there. Like people often say, there were elves, there were little people, not self-dribbling jeweled basketballs, but simply little people. I've even had people say they wore, they had leather jerkins and, and little turned up curls on their footwear and stuff like that. Um, other people say, it, it's to me the archetype of DMT is the archetype of the circus. And when you take it, you'll know what I mean. Because the circus is a very complex emotional construct. A circus is a great place to take children. They love circuses because of the clowns and the animals and the colored costumes and the moving light. But the circus is many things. I mean, above all that, and in the center ring up near the top of the tent is the lady in the tiny spangled costume who is hanging by her teeth and working without nets. Death and eros. And I think, you know, it may reflect on my psychology, but I am positive that my first exposure to death and eros was such a woman. Because I can remember being so small that I, I was wrapped up in something and handed from hand to hand. And yet when I saw the lady in the spangled costume, risking her life, I simultaneously understood that she was risking her life and that she was some kind of great babe. And, you know, I was under three at the time. So, eros and death in the midst of hilarity and humor, which is a weird juxtaposition. And then the side, the sideshows the boy in the bottle, the Siamese twins, the goat-headed lady, you know, the bearded woman, all of this weird, kinky, strange, deviant stuff is just off the main exhibit. And the circus, what the circus represents is rupture of plane. It represents the alien. A circus coming to a small Midwestern town is an alien invasion. Children are told they can't play out late at night. The Carney people are in town. Farmers come from miles around. It's a celebration, but it also 
is a, an experience of a social edge. The carny people, they drink, they may swap wives, who knows? They're not like us over here at the Lutheran Church. And eventually, after a few days, they make their money, they spin their bottles, they play their game, and then they pack up and they leave. And every child worth his or her salt wants to run away with the circus. Of course, because the circus will take you to another world, a world completely different from the humdrum Kansas that you're living in somewhere. If any of you are film fans, uh, Federico Fellini had a wonderful affection for the circus and clearly saw it in this way. Not only the circus of Amarcord, and, uh, and, but the, the circus of Roma, Satyricon, Casanova. I mean, over and over again, Fellini, he was doing this. He was a, an impresario. He was a master of magic and effect. It's, uh, it's this idea that there's a world right next door, literally one toke away, that when you lift the veil, then the screaming elf hordes come bounding in. And when I did it, I was a... A, a fan of Sartre and Camus and Jean Genet and you know, situationalism, all this weird kind of European 20th century spun down, tired out stuff. I was, I was not a believer in elves, let me put it that way. And it just instantly settled a whole bunch of questions that I had been looking for answers for in the psychedelics. But in the other psychedelics, it was like always running through my fingers. You know, it is the imagination, it's mind, it's me, it's like dream. With DMT, the conviction is unescapable that, my God, this is real. It's more real than this world. This world is like a shimmering hallucination compared to the DMT world. And as to what it means, I'm not sure. I mean, I took pure DMT with me to the Amazon on one of the trips and got out with the Ayahuascaros and turned a couple of these guys on to this. And they were, number one, appalled, and number two said, it's ancestors. It's ancestor spirits. I mean, didn't we tell you that we do it all with the ancestors? Well, that is, strangely enough, the conservative analysis. Because look at what you've got. You've got some kind of intelligent entity, not made of matter, made of light, able to communicate with English-speaking human beings, sort of, meaning with this visual language. Well, so it's either if we put aside the figment of your imagination theory, which seems a little pallid at this point, then it's either an extraterrestrial, a true extraterrestrial, and that's possible. I mean, think about it for a moment. If you were an extraterrestrial of great sophistication and skill and technological power, and you wanted to contact and interact with human beings, 
without alarming them or setting off a historical crisis on their planet, how would you do it? I think you would hide yourself inside an intoxication. Because as we know, if you meet somebody and they tell you they were drinking heavily last night and they saw pink elephants, only a mad person calls the zoo to find out if any elephants have escaped. That's ridiculous. No, we don't take seriously reports of pink elephants because they are associated with intoxication. Well, if you wanted to disguise and hide yourself in the detritus of this world in a place humans would never ever take you seriously, then just slip in between the pink elephant and the something else in an intoxication. So that's one possibility. True extraterrestrials with some kind of mentalist technology that where what we think of as a drug is for them a communications network of some sort. Or it could be a parallel continuum of some sort, uh, not exactly made of matter. But how weird that the way you get from this world to that world is by using a drug. But maybe that's not so weird. Maybe the idea that you would climb in an H.G. Wells-style machine and push a button is just absurdly 19th century and naive. Uh, but the more conservative position since we've never discovered extraterrestrials or dwellers in parallel continuums. And since these things, they are alien and yet not alien. They are alien and yet the alienness is pervaded with a real sense of familiarity. So I think that what they are is souls. And this is what the shamans in the Amazon said they were. They're souls. And that what we're seeing is an ecology of souls. And, you know, it took me the first 16 years of my life to fight my way free of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and I'm appalled that life's intellectual adventure has brought me back to the point where we have to talk about souls. <laughs> but, hey, once you've been there, once you've been swarmed by a mess of them, your view on this subject changes. And I think it's very interesting news. I don't know, well, hmm, it's like, it's like dying, sort of. And I, at one point, had an opportunity to turn on a Tibetan monk to these things, a Tibetan Lama, not not a Budweiser Lama, not one of those people, a real Lama. And uh, he's since died. He was ancient then. In fact, I was afraid it might kill him, but he said it didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, after it was all over, he said, those are the lesser lights. He said, you cannot go deeper into the bardo and return. He said, if you go deeper into the bardo than this, you will sever your connection to the body. And, and so essentially what he was saying was it's a near-death experience. 
but it's a lot weirder than the near-death experiences being popularized on daytime TV and in the New Age press, which are all about welcoming relatives, holding out their arms and beckoning. This is not welcoming relatives we're talking about here. I think they are souls, but I don't think it's Aunt Minnie and Uncle Ned. I don't think it works quite like that. One of the very weird things about the DMT place that I go, and I've done it many, many times in order to build up an image of, of what it is, and the image that comes to me is that well, I've already mentioned this thing about how it always reveals itself through veils. It never shows you what the real action is. The vibe of this place that I go on DMT is uh, it's a playpen, is what it is. And these self-transforming elf machines that we're going into such an ontological swivet about are nothing more than toys what they are. They are designed to amaze and amuse me, someone with a very deep insight into human psychology created these things and they're nothing more than the equivalent of taking plastic shapes strung on a string and hanging them over a bassinet so that an infant can begin to bat at them and coordinate eye, hand, distance, this sort of thing. The feeling is not only of a playpen, but of a maternity ward. That you're being born, and you're being born, and there's a lot of, you know, what ayahuascaros call little doctors, is what they call the things they see in ayahuasca. There are a lot of little doctors in this weird underground space. And they're waiting for you. And it, because you only stay two minutes, it doesn't get too out of hand. Because what can happen in two minutes? Not, you see, you look around, they show you some toys, they tell you you're a fine fellow, they tell you not to worry, and it's, the interview is over. But what if there was no going back? Well, then you're just there. You're a little swaddling and you're there. And presumably beyond the confines of that room is a world as different from that room as this world is different from the general maternity ward at Kaiser Hospital. And then you, you, you go with them into that place. That's what it feels like. And... Um, I don't know what it means. What does it mean, Mr. Natural? I don't know what it means. It don't mean shit. That was Mr. Natural's answer to the question, you recall. Uh, it, it seems as though it should be a secret. And on, in a sense, it is a secret in that, you know, it isn't the world's largest religion, is not DMT smoking. Uh, I, I, I think I said this in reference to something else. I am self-initiated. I, no lineage controls me. 
Nobody ever came knocking on my door and said, you know, you shouldn't talk about this stuff. It, it, nobody has ever done that to me. So I have the weird feeling, and I don't believe it, but I have the feeling that it's like I discovered it. Because nobody tells me, nobody comes over and says, hey, you're on our territory, or don't talk about that. Didn't you know that we Mandayans have been doing this for 10,000 years? So, and, and I've been talking about it for, since 82 in public, and it's still a secret. It's still a secret. It's the secret that can't be told. And I'm fascinated by you people because um, it is your fate, and I have no idea why, to come at least this far. I mean, maybe some of you have smoked DMT, but probably most of you haven't. So it's your fate to come this far uh, this morning to hear this, and you can forget it, you can disbelieve it. You can think that I am a screwball and de disempower it that way. But as far as I can tell, and I have searched the attic of Western and Eastern civilization, been to a lot of weird places, uh, as far as I can tell, this is it. This is the thing which we are raised to believe is impossible. They tell you there's no doorway out except the grave. And then they tell you it's no doorway out. But even if the grave is not a doorway out, even if the grave means dissolution into non-entity for all eternity, DMT is the way out. And it exists. It's common. It exists in many plants. If as a society we valued it, we could produce trainloads of the stuff. It's just a trivial, ordinary chemical of some sort. But what it does to the human mind is this civilization can't stand it. This civilization is based on a number of unquestioned premises which in the light of DMT are seen to be not only false, preposterous. And I don't know where we go from here. I don't know if societies can be built on DMT. Maybe only individual lives can be built on DMT. Yeah. Well, actually, this is a funny thing. Why isn't more of it made? There's a lot of LSD around. LSD is hard as hell to make. You have to be good. You have to be very good. DMT is a second-year organic chem, final exam kind of deal. It's at that level of difficulty. And yet, wherever it is, it's precious. It's never met with in large amounts. And uh, it, it doesn't seem to behave like an ordinary substance. You would think something with this amount of hype behind it would make somebody rich. You know, somebody would say, well, by God, I'm going to make 500 kilos of that and spread it from Singapore to, you know, wherever. 
and, uh, and make a killing. It's never like that. If you find somebody who has some, they have a tiny amount. And, uh, and I should make the final point, I suppose, this is not something completely alien. The chemical I'm now talking about, the experience is plenty alien. The chemical, the chemical occurs in your own body. It occurs in the human body, in the human brain. No one knows what it's doing there. But I think that uh, dream, because the, the DMT actually not only occurs in the human brain, but it occurs in higher and higher concentrations as you ascend the, phylate, uh, the primate phylogeny, the phylate primogeny. Uh, <clears throat> and I think dreaming, that the chemistry of dreaming must be run on DMT, and for several reasons. The first one is, there is only one thing on Earth that ends like a DMT trip, and that's an interrupted dream. You know how you can be dreaming and you're in Paris and you've finally gotten the car and you've met the friend and now you're headed for the... and it's this kind of crazy stuff. And then the alarm clock rings and literally before your feet hit the floor, you, it's gone. You know, the whole, you can almost feel it, it melts. It melts. Dreams melt in the same way that DMT melts away. And, very suggestive, the physiological concomitant to dreaming is what's called rapid eye movement. This has been known since the 50s. Well, uh, the uh, highest concentration of DMT in human cerebrospinal fluid occurs between 3 and 4.30 a.m. This is when the deep dreaming is going on as correlated to REM, to, to REM movement of the eyes. Well, uh, when you dose somebody on DMT, and it's smoked, I guess I said that, when you dose somebody on DMT, they flop down and lie still if they're a good subject. Otherwise, they twitch and scream and try to run around. But you don't put up with that. You just sit on them. But a good, a good somebody who knows how to take their medicine will just shut up and lie down. Well, then you look very carefully at them. Their eyes are closed. And you can see about 30 seconds into the experience their eyes begin to dart wildly under their closed eyelids. They are in REM sleep. And I'm sure that if you could put electrodes on people, you would see that the DMT triggers a plunge into REM. And that's where the, the, this takes place. Second piece of data which relates to this and is very, very interesting to me, and I wish... I had more resources, more money, more um, connections, believe it or not, uh, is this, that once you have smoked DMT and had the experience that I'm talking about, later, years later, you can have a dream. 
where you're with people somewhere and something's going on and then and then lo and behold somebody produces a small glass pipe in this dream hands it to you flashes a butane lighter and it happens it happens in the dream and not a memory of it, not a pale reflection, but a 100% full-on 70 milligram DMT trip in the dream. That means to me that we have the capacity for this all the time. And remember, this is the most powerful hallucinogen on this planet. And yet, apparently our body chemistry is delicately enough balanced that this is not that far out of reach. And yet, people never have DMT trips when awake. If it happened to one person in 50,000, it would be a phenomenon known to us since the birth of Greek medicine. But people don't ever have that happen to them. Uh, so I think, I talked to Rupert about this. His idea, which is possible, certainly, he calls it a, uh, he calls it a um, necrotogen. Yes, necrotogen. Meaning that, it, that it's something which is released in the brain at death and never before under ordinary circumstances. And that for some reason, this is the chemical which lets you die. And it is true that at a certain point, the organism, as I understand it, sort of releases. It gives up. And then death proceeds very quickly from that point. So perhaps this is what it is. But what is it for? That's the question. I mean, why can't we just die like dogs? Nobody wants to die. Why should there be this salutary release? You know, you know there is orgasm, or at least ejaculation, in some forms of death. That seems to imply that the body is in life in a state of tension and holding, and when, when death is really very close, if not inevitable, then the body un goes through some kind of series of changes and perhaps one of them is the release of DMT. I, I don't say this proves an after-death world because I know what proof means. And, you know, dying says nothing about death and tripping says nothing about death or it can only give an indication. But it it has caused me to think very, very seriously about shamanism, about their insistence that they work through ancestor magic, and about the question of death, just what is biology trying to do, and what is the nature of our form? You know, metabolism, we come into being with a morphogenetic program, and by eating, first our mother's milk and then pablum and then the stuff of the world, we stabilize the form. The, fle <clears throat> the flesh is replaced every few months or years, but the form stays. Over a long period of time, the, the form sort of withers and hunches and wrinkles, 
But it's recognizable. Seventy years after birth, a person is still recognizably the little girl or boy that they were at five years old in most cases. So then at death, the form fails and metabolism fails and you no longer are maintained far from equilibrium in what's called the living state. Instead, you know, everything stops and the body becomes an object like a piece of furniture. It can be stacked like cordwood or dealt with in whatever way anybody wants to. Uh, But perhaps nature does not create this form in vain. And perhaps in the world of higher dimensions and possibilities, this thing is preserved. It is certainly a persistent intuition of many religions that what life is about is creating um, something called a a, a vehicle, an after-death vehicle, a body of light, a diamond body, something which endures and that at death is released into some kind of super space where it has an entirely other kind of existence about which we can know and say nothing. Uh, When you look at our past, it seems to support this idea to some degree in that we all are here and yet we we came out of the bodies of women and in a very mysterious process. I mean, it always seemed to me, people always said, you know, what sex is about is the union of, of egg and sperm and that's where people came from. Well, at age eight, I was not satisfied with that. I mean, they always wanted to talk about sex, but what I wanted to know was, but where do people really come from? I understand about how we get them downloaded into meat, but where are they? You know, where are they? I mean, where was I a thousand years ago? Where was I a million years ago? And say, well, you didn't exist. Well, then you came into existence 50% over here in your father's sperm and 50% over here in your mother's egg. Well, then did I exist you know, my mother had the egg which became me from the time she was born. And uh, if my, fa- my father was younger than my mother, so half of me apparently existed before the other half existed. Say, hmm, this sounds like messed up thinking of some sort. Isn't it rather that uh, a pattern is making a series of transits from one dimension to another. And, you know, dying is not like birth in the sense that in the womb you're alone. Uh, here we, we have our wonderful planet full of interesting people and we die away from our group. Uh, when you start down the birth canal, it's not because you're lonely. 
because the concept lonely could hardly arise in the womb, I think, because there is no other except the other of the complete surround, which you may or may not image as human. You may think of it as the world, not my, you know, an extension of myself. So, uh, because I'm not the smartest person in the world, for sure, but I'm also not the stupidest person in the world. And I've been more or less around the block, the major religions, the major schools of transformation, the major themes and variations on sexuality. I'm, I'm like a normal person. And I tell you, from where I'm standing, it looks to me like the biggest news there is. I do not understand why there aren't four-inch headlines. You know, scientists announced discovery of hyperspace, nearby inhabited dimension confirmed by laboratories in England and Russia, or some crap like that, you know. But it, it never happens. It seems to belong, it's not part of our official culture. It's not recognized, it's not sanctioned, it's not allowed. And, you know, I have a, somehow found a unique kind of niche, but most people who talk like this don't get a chance to make a living. They're put in back wards and heavily sedated and kept from contact with the rest of people because it, it's madness. But it's not dysfunction. It doesn't, I know how to hold my fork, make a phone call, pay my bills. What kind of madness is it? It's just a minority opinion. It's not madness. But it's a minority opinion because it's a minority experience, for crying out loud. I mean, if, most, if everybody lived in Hawaii and you were an Arctic explorer and you insisted that part of the planet was covered with ice five miles thick and the sun stayed up 24 hours a day, they would just put you away. Turns out it's the fact of the matter. So this is a polar region of human experience that very few people have mapped or been to, and yet we don't have a full picture. I mean, I would like to know, what would Jean-Paul Sartre have said? What would Nietzsche have said? What would Wittgenstein have made of this? I mean, all these people based their lives and their professions on the datum of experience. Well, by God, here's a datum of experience. Put this in your pipe and smoke it, and we'll talk datum of experience. You can take it um, every 24 hours. People, people have an interesting relationship to it. Uh, a lot of, like when you give it to someone who's never had it, they've usually been furiously hyped, so they're quaking in their boots. And if you can get over all that and actually get them to do a huge amount, often they come down literally begging for more. And I tend to resist giving them more because I've noticed that there seems to be a slight reflex, a, a slight tolerance. The second, the second flash, if you go into it immediately, is not as strong as the first, but that person who came out of it clawing and begging for it, 24 hours later, if you offer it to them, they may hesitate, they may even take a pass, 
because as I've always said, it's the implications of it. And you don't get the implications together in the first five minutes. You say, you know, my God, what was that? Well, and then you sit down under a tree somewhere by yourself and try to answer the question, what was that? And it makes your hair stand on end. You know, was I dead? Was I in the presence of extraterrestrial minds? Did that really go on? Was it really real? And so there's a kind of a, a reluctance to do it. It's like jumping off a cliff into cold water. You really have to screw your courage to the sticking point. And I don't know why that is, because every time I do it, I'm absolutely delighted. And I have immense resistance to it. And every time I do it, it's just like, yes, I remember. And they scream in greeting. I mean, they just turn out by the dozens. Say, here he is, tremendous. You send so many. You come so rarely. Well, let's get on with the show. And then, you know, the Fabergé eggs, the dance, the whole thing. Um, it's uh, it's boundary dissolving is what it is, and we have a real aversion to that. When the boundary that's dissolved is serious, we have a real aversion to it. And the other thing about DMT that's fascinating that I should have mentioned, I suppose, is that we associate these drug experiences with slight alterations of our judgment. You know, when you drink liquor, you become socially capable of taking risks that you wouldn't ordinarily take. I'm speaking of guys now. Uh, in other words, the, the liquor slightly changes your judgment about what is proper and what you can get away with and so forth and so on. The strange thing about DMT is it doesn't affect your mind. It does not affect your mind. So you come into that place neither happier nor sadder than where you left. You are not stimulated. You are not depressed. You are not anything different. You are exactly the same person that you were. And yet the world has disappeared. It's been completely replaced, 100% swap out. And here you are in this elf nest. And if you were on ketamine and you were to wander into this elf nest, it would just be fine because everything is fine on ketamine. The first thing you notice when you do ketamine is that you've stopped worrying about the fact that you just did ketamine. That, you know, it, it impairs your judgment. In other words, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's appropriate to not worry on ketamine. But I like to keep my wits about me. And on DMT, you keep all your wits about you. It isn't about you. People say, well, I'm depressed. Should I do it? Or I just had a big fight with my girlfriend. Should I do it? What difference does it make? Who cares about you and your problems? And worry? It's not like that. You know, it's what it is, and you can have it or not have it or whatever. 
it's very, very convincingly another place. And, and that's, uh, that's startling. I always close my eyes because it's, I want to see inside. If you keep your eyes open, it's plenty peculiar. I mean, every, it's, everything changes and, and if you take a big enough hit, you can't tell whether your eyes are open or closed. That distinction seems trivial. You're just there, eyes open or eyes closed. But I like to do it on a sunny hillside, outside. It's the only one of these things that I like to do in light. It'll work in darkness, but light is spectacular, you know. Just lie down on a sunny hillside, calm down, breathe deeply. If you've had to climb to get to where you are, breathe that all away. You want to be absolutely calm and still. And I do it alone uh, because I, I make strange noises and stuff and I don't want to be interrupted, critiqued, helped or any of that malarkey. Um, and then I just do it. And um, there's nothing like it on this planet. And the puzzle of it is, there's nothing like it in human history. No secret society, no Gnostic cabal, no group of Talmudists or Tantrics, uh, I think, ever came near this. Uh, there may be other mysteries in this world that I know nothing of that are in fact the private and closely guarded property of these lineages and all that. Who knows? But this, this was the Hope Diamond lying around unclaimed, uh, just sitting on the surface. Like dreams, it's very hard to hang on to. You have to do DMT a fair number of times to build up any notion of it. It's very interesting. At, at minute, I mean, somebody smokes it, right? At minute three, they can't speak. At minute seven, they can't stop speaking about how absolutely amazed, appalled, and exalted they are. And at minute twelve, they can't remember what they were talking about at minute seven. All the, and you, finally, a half an hour after doing it, Really, the only impression most people have after the first time is they say, it was the weirdest thing which ever happened to me and I cannot remember anything about it. It's like there's a, I think, you know, physiologically speaking, there's no transcription of short-term RNA into memory. It, it, it's memory can't hold it. And I think that's because memory works through associative triangulation. You know, this car looks like that car, this city, Lisbon reminds me of San Francisco or Rio. But if you have an experience that's utterly outside category, you have no triangulation of it. There's, you, you can't say. And I am very aware, you know, when I tell the story of the self-transforming elf machines and the glossolalia and all that, that it's a kind of a lie. It's the only, it's, it's, it's not true, but it points 
toward a truth that can't be told. Uh, 70 milligrams, and then what happens is you have to take several hits. Well, it depends on your sensitivity. This is another thing that needs to be studied by science. Some people seem practically on the brink of it. I mean, in other words, you put 70 milligrams in the pipe, you tell them that it's probably going to take three enormous tokes. Will they get halfway through one shallow toke, fall down, speak in tongues, twitch, moan, flail? It seems inappropriate to suggest that they do three more tokes. So, you know, and, and then, and, but for me, well, I, I can do it on one toke if it's a real, tremendous, enormous hash toke. What I usually do is I take one small toke and it kind of anesthetizes my throat. And then on the second one, you go for broke. But it does require a certain amount of courage because when you take the first toke, you immediately feel it. You don't feel the trip but you feel that something astonishing is happening inside your body. It's a a weird kind of, it's as though all the air has been pumped out of the room. All edges jump forward in clarity. That's the visual acuity thing. But more than that, a kind of feeling of, of, um, I guess it's anesthesia or something, but uh, your body feels very, very different and you still must do one more enormous toke. So what we tell people is even though you feel very weird, don't stop. That's not sufficient. You have to get it on the money. And we're even developing uh, a new technique for doing it that I'm very excited about which is we have what looks like a pipe coming into a glass vessel, uh, or, or I mean a, just a channel, a cylinder coming into a glass vessel. And out of the glass vessel comes another, another tube with a fork in it. And what you do is you, uh, you vaporize the DMT it fills the reaction chamber with white smoke. You put the forked ends into your nostril and you have a friend blow the white smoke and just force it into your sinus cavity. Um, this is an adaptation of the Yanomamo method, but they use wood, woody, it's like sawdust. It's very, but this is, this is profound. Yeah, what you do is you, you, you measure the 70 milligrams and you put it in the pipe and then you try to smoke the pipe until either you get it all or you, the pipe holds from, falls from your hand. And what I do when I turn people on is I try to get them to do one or two tokes or three, whatever it takes, until they flop back and they present, you can tell whether they're getting off or not. And then the minute they flop back, I look at the second hand of my watch and I count 30 seconds. And then I say in a very quiet voice, 
do you want another hit? And if they sit up unaided, I'll give it to them. If they can't sit up, then I figure no matter what they say, they're out of bounds. And, uh, and sometimes it takes it. It, it, it. There is a resistance there, but when you punch through, it's pure high vacuum on the other side. It just sucks you right in. I, I have tapes. I've never published tapes of me actually loaded, but I've, <laughs> I've le- because they're low quality, you know, made on some little. Te- I used to. I, I had a period where I would take very high doses of mushrooms, like eight dried grams, and then smoke DMT on top of it, and that all went on in a tent in the Hawaiian rainforest, and I had a little recorder with me, but. It's interesting. Uh, the glossolalia as to what it sounds like, it sounds like this. And somehow, that syntactically structured but meaningless kind of vocalization becomes the basis of an ecstasy of some sort for some reason. And of course, what's happening in the DMT thing is there is a three-dimensional accompaniment. You hear sounds, but the person making the sounds is seeing what they're making. They're not hearing. The sounds are incidental. They're like the sounds from a buzzsaw when you make furniture. The important thing is the furniture you make. and and you can that's why virtual reality interests me so much because my idea of a design program for virtual reality is go thou and simulate a DMT flash uh, that would have a commercial application you could sell that industrial light and magic would be interested and then we could give people DMT and then put them, and then after they came down, put them into the virtual reality simulator and say, critique, please. You know, is this what you saw? How is this different from what you saw? What changes would you make in this virtual reality environment to make it more DMT-like? And I think this is the way to build consensus. I've always said that these tech, the purpose of these technologies is to show each other the inside of our own heads. Dreams, but especially psychedelic uh, drug states. And uh, I think this is probably coming. I think that we will have, you know, that in the future you may take, you may have psychedelic experiences, but they may not be your own. We may develop the equivalent of media stars who do it so well that you will just buy their CD and to do their trip. Remember in, uh, which book was it by Philip K. Dick? Or, or maybe it wasn't, maybe, I can't remember, but the, the, the science fiction story where this virginal 16-year-old girl with long blonde hair and perfect surfer body and so forth and so on 
and she recorded and sold herself. That was the product because she was so vital and so young and so bouncy and together that everybody wanted to be this young woman. And so they sold uh, sim vids and, uh, and she was on the top ten for a few months and then somebody else slipped in there. In transmigration of Timothy Archer could have been. I don't think that, I mean, on this question of health, I don't think people should be loaded all the time, uh, other than cannabis or something like that. But I mean psychedelic voyages are trips away from home. They are trips away from home. And we go away from home if we're uh, able to afford it several times a year. That sounds about right. Uh, the other thing I'm no fan of, and I suppose I should say it and then let you go, is I do not believe uh, as a rule, I mean I would break the rule in some cases, but as a rule, I think it's bad to combine drugs. Uh, you know, if very little is known about these drugs, a thousand times less is known about what happens when you start combining things. And, you know, I, I know people who are really druggy. I mean, I know people who say, well, we got together last night and we smoked a little dope and then dropped some MDMA and somebody had some 5-MeO DMT and after that we used the ketamine to kind of mellow it out. Well, if you were to tell me that these people died of coronary thrombosis or stroke or anything else, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, that's nuts to pile one drug upon another like that. I mean, and then they say, oh, well, how was it? Say, it was far out, man. Whoa, my God, I would certainly hope so. Uh, we're not likely to revisit that combination anytime soon, so I hope you took good notes. No, I think high doses of pure compounds, high doses, heroic doses, Find out the LD50 for the drugs you're interested in so that when you're in there and your mind tells you, well, now you're going to die, you can at least have a dialogue with it about how that's impossible because you only took one two hundredth of the lethally effective dose. If you don't know what the lethal dose is and your mind starts telling you you're dying, you're just uh, its creature to play with. Um, so it's very important to inform yourself uh, of the pharmacology, the botany, the ethnomedical dimensions of these things, the physiological presentation of the state, the anecdotal accounts of what goes on, and then do it, and do it right. Do it on an empty stomach, in darkness if that's indicated. And this whole thing about the guide, if you're not familiar with these things, you need a sitter. But a sitter is not a guide. A sitter is to call 911. And guides, anybody who tells you they're going to guide you, doesn't know the territory. Uh, nobody can guide anybody else. They're just there to reassure 
in my if I have a sitter, they're at least one room away, and I have a little Tibetan gong or something, and they can pop their head in if I ring it. But I don't like being around people when I'm stoned, and I really don't like being around stoned people when I'm stoned. No, no, pot is like cold water. But the reason I, the reason I don't like to be around people when I'm stoned and they're stoned is because I worry about them. If I'm, if I take five grams of mushrooms and somebody else takes five grams of mushrooms and we're lying side by side in a darkened room, I'm worrying about them. I'm listening. Can I hear them breathing? I hear them breathing. We'll say I can't. Well then, but maybe they are breathing. Well, but then if I bother them, maybe something really profound is happening to them. So then, and my mind just turns into a nattering moron of some sort out of worry for the other person and some weird sense of responsibility, usually because I'm the, the advocate, if not the provider. Um, so, you know, Take all this with a grain of salt, process it through your own filters, proclivities, eccentricities, and so forth and so on, and uh, let's get together at four. Well, there you have it. DMT 101 with Terence McKenna. Nothing more to say about it, really. If you have tried uh, DMT, you know what he is speaking about. And if you are interested in these things, you might be curious about what he is, in fact, speaking about. But if you don't belong in either of these two groups, then you might feel you have just suffered through the ramblings of a madman. But what is sanity? Is it the paternal, dominating, male, white, corporate, suited, greedy normality that we live in on a daily basis? Is this the height of sanity? Author Kurt Vonnegut said it best. A sane person to an insane society must appear insane. A sane person to an insane society must appear insane. Let's close this episode with Chirobon's track City Patrol Stage B from the album Distant Reality. If you like this artist, go to chirobon.bandcamp.com. I will also post this link in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com. Have a safe week and don't let the delusion of reality confuse you regarding the reality of the illusion. Freedom is in the mind.
Thank you.